All right, everybody, we are uh, back to grow after a month hiatus. We're on about, let's see, what's uh, six times three is 18. We're on our 19th systematic theology lesson. It begins today, article um, six, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. We're doing three per, so we've done six articles. No, we've done five articles, 15. This is our 16th lesson. Uh, we've done five articles. We're on Article 6. So our theme is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that you love to disciple us. The, the formative discipline, the shaping power of your word that Romans says renews us through the transformation of our mind. You shape us, you mold us. Thank you for committing not to leave us the same and that we don't have to fix ourselves to come to you, but once coming to Christ, you are more committed than any person in the universe to seeing to it that we're changed. So we pray today that the informed mind would lead to the transformed heart. Help us to see your son as you see him and to think biblically about the most glorious person in the universe. So use this time for your glory to that end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Yay, thank you. All right, so uh, this is our Core Doctrines series. It's based on our elder affirmation of faith. We're taking each of the articles in that affirmation, which you can find on our website or other places, probably back on the resource table. We have el an elder affirmation of faith, and we're taking each article in three parts. We're on week one today, which is biblical theology. Lord willing, week two, next week, historical theology. Two weeks from today, we'll do something just a little different. This will be a time of prayer for our adults during GROW. And then the third part will be actually the fourth Sunday of this month, week three, the practical theology part. So I mentioned the affirmation is Article 6. We're looking at part one there, the biblical theology. See if my, there we go, right there. And the theme is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. I'm going to read to you the affirmation of faith. It has... Uh, four parts, 6.1, 2, 3, and 4, and then we'll just walk through each of those parts as best we can in the time we have available. 6.1, we believe that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His eternal Son as Jesus the Messiah, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that when the eternal Son became flesh, He took on a fully human nature so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without confusion or mixture. Thus the person, Jesus Christ, was and is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ and the only mediator between God and man. We'll come back to that. But point two says, we believe that Jesus Christ lived without sin, though he endured 
the common infirmities and temptations of human life. He preached and taught with truth and authority, unparalleled in human history. He worked miracles, demonstrating his divine right and power over all creation, dispatching demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, stilling the storm, walking on water, multiplying loves, and foreknowing what would befall him and his disciples, including the betrayal of Judas and the denial, restoration, and eventual martyrdom of Peter. And 6.3, we believe that his life was governed by his father's providence with a view to fulfilling all Old Testament prophecies concerning the one who was to come, that's today's sermon text, by the way, such as the seed of the woman, the prophet like Moses, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, the son of David, and the suffering servant. And then finally, 6.4, we believe that Jesus Christ suffered voluntarily in fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he died was buried, and on the third day, rose from the dead to vindicate the saving work of his life and death and to take his place as the invincible, everlasting Lord of glory. During 40 days after his resurrection, he gave many compelling evidences of his bodily resurrection and then ascended bodily into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people on the basis of his all-sufficient sacrifice for sin and reigning until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Well, that's a lot uh, to cover, 6.1, 2, 3, and 4, and I have no less than 58 slides and 20 minutes. So here we go. In 6.1, I don't expect you to remember what I read, but this is what I want to draw out four aspects of the first point of this article. The timing of the sending of the Messiah, his immaculate conception and virgin birth, what's known theologically as the hypostatic union, two natures, one person, and Jesus' mediatorial role as the God-man between God and man. So we got to go quickly. First, the Messiah was sent in the fullness of time. Our affirmation said, when the fullness of time came. The, the perfect timing of the Father in the sending of His Son in the scope of redemptive history is a biblical theme. Here's one proof text. Galatians 6, 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Well, you guys remember that there was quite a long time between the last Old Testament prophecy and the coming of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. 400 years of intertestamental silence. And I can only imagine, like our siblings in Egypt under slavery for 400 plus years, it seemed like God had forgotten His promise. It seemed like, is He ever going to do what He said He was going to do? And the struggle for the fight of faith to believe that the Lord would indeed fulfill his promise. But he wasn't slow, Peter said, concerning his promise, just right on time, perfectly in accord with his eternal will. Second, the immaculate conception and virgin birth. We're dealing with the core doctrines of the Christian faith. That's the subtitle of this whole 
Grow series we're doing now for our 16th lesson, core doctrines, meaning indispensable to Christianity. You deny these, you're outside the bounds of Christianity. One of the core doctrines of the Christian faith is supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit, immaculate conception, and that Jesus was not only immaculately conceived, spirit conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary, but he was also virgin born. Mary remained a virgin until after the birth of Christ. This is a biblical reality. Luke 1, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Similarly, in Matthew 1, verses 23 and 25, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. But notice he was not only immaculately conceived, but he was also virgin born, verse 25. But Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. These are indispensable truths to the Christian faith the supernatural condescending of the second person of the Trinity apart from human intervention. One more passage. You're familiar with John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, the enfleshed Logos, the eternal God in human flesh. So, we've seen that fullness of time and immaculate conception. Now this theological term, hypostatic union, even if you're unfamiliar with it, I can assure you that as a, belie- as a Christian, you already believe it. But let's look into what this aspect means. In Hebrews 2, we find this truth, we find it many places, of the hypostatic union. Truly God, truly man, one person, two natures. Not two people, one person united with, with two distinct yet inseparable natures. Hebrews 2 puts it this way, verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, Ancient creeds and confessions say, like the Athanasian Creed, uh, concerning his deity, equal to God. Concerning his humanity, equal to man. Therefore, he's an adequate mediator between God and man. That's the doctrine of the hypostatic union, or as uh, Pastor Rick says around Christmas time, he talks about... uh, wanting people to be blessed during the season of Advent, thinking on the incarnation of Christ. He's, I, I, he, can, he can help me with this. It, he wants people to experience a copious effusion of the, keep going, what, what is it? I forget, it's one of his Rickisms. It's, a, it's something about the a copious effusion of the blessedness of the hypostatic union deep in your soul, blah, 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 in a Rickyology kind of way. <laughs> but uh, it's a glorious doctrine of the incarnation. Philippians 2 touches 
the truth of the hypostatic union. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, let's see, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. True, truly God, truly man. The, the fourth aspect of our first point of the article that I just want to touch briefly on is his mediatorial role in reality. The only mediator between God and men, our affirmation said this explicitly, but from whence does it come? Well, many, many, many places, one of which is 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Do you notice it doesn't say the God Christ Jesus? That would be theologically true, but it wouldn't help you as it pertains to redemption. He has to be truly man to bring men to God. So he's both Emmanuel, God with us, and he's truly man who therefore can unite humanity as a second Adam back to God. That's article 6.1. Point two. We only have two things to draw out from this part of the article. He was tempted, truly tempted, yet perfectly without sin. And he demonstrated divinely authoritative words and signs, showing the veracity of his deity, that he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, the long-awaited Christ. So let's take the first one, tempted yet perfectly without sin. You all are familiar with this theme Biblically, Hebrews 4, our ladies looked at this last month at their ladies' retreat. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Nobody can say to Jesus, you don't know what I'm going through. Yes, he does. He has experienced the same type of temptation you have, yet without sin. Therefore, he can be a merciful mediator. John 8, 29, uh, Jesus says, I think it's the greatest epitaph in the Bible, he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. No sin, perfect glorification of the Father in his humanity. He's the perfectly spirit-filled man. He didn't default to his deity to overcome sin and temptation. He trusted the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God written to overcome sin and temptation. He shows us the perfectly spirit-filled man. In that way, he's an exemplar, our example. But he's more than moral example. He's also our redeemer for all the times we've failed. Finally, 2 Corinthians 5 makes explicit his sinlessness. He made him, that's the father made the son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might... That's my I better hurry up alarm. Uh, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I love the precision of the Holy Spirit. I say around here sometimes, the Holy Spirit's not trying to make His book longer. He didn't just add verses for space filler. But notice the precision. He made Him who 
knew no sin, look at this phrase, to be sin. Not to be a sinner. That would make you step outside the bounds of Christian truth. But he became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's only possible because of his impeccability, his purity, his sinlessness. 6.2, I also wanted to draw out the divinely authoritative words and signs of the Lord Jesus. This prove the authenticity that he is the redeemer. John 7, everybody could discern, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. That was abundantly obvious, his authority. In Mark 1, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. It was readily abundant that he had power over not only the physical realm, take up your pallet and walk, but the spiritual realm. He commands unclean spirits and they do exactly what he says. Total authority. And then John 13, from now on, Jesus says, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. You may have noticed in the Gospel of John in our sermon series, like two weeks ago when Matt was preaching, um, it wasn't until after the resurrection that the apostle said, ah, I understand that these things were written about him earlier. Well, Jesus possesses the comprehensive awareness in his incarnation of all the things that are happening. And he says them in advance. He is, he's the God-man. So his signs, his teaching, his miracles underline the veracity of his messianic reality, his role. 6.3. Two things, uh, yeah, two things I want to point out. During his incarnation, he lived on earth in total voluntary subordination to the Father. Not from eternity, but in his incarnate state. And therefore, he exhaustively fulfilled the messianic assignment. He did exactly what the Father sent him to do. First, voluntary subordination. That's a willing obedience. It's a self-humbling to the Father to obey the Father's prerogative. That's voluntary subordination, a willing servant. Listen to this theme come out in John's Gospel. Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing for whatever the father does these things the son also does in like manner I mean seriously earlier in the gospel of John John tells us in no uncertain terms Jesus created the cosmos all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that's come into being he's God and here's Jesus saying I can't do anything by myself it's a portrait of his voluntary submittedness, subordination to the Father's prerogative during his incarnation. Also in John 5.30, Jesus says even more emphatically, I can do nothing on my own initiative. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Nothing on his own initiative? He's totally submitted to the will of the Father. And we see that running all the way to the cross, the Garden of Gethsemane being a highlight. Not my will, but yours be done. Totally subordinated to the pleasure of the Father. And that's an eternal covenant that the Father and Son struck that in time the Messiah would submit himself to the will of the Father, even laying down his own life, obedient to the point of death. One more verse on his voluntary subordination. The Son says, not I glorified myself, but I glorified you, that's the Father, on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What a pattern. This is what our life is supposed to look like. Total submission to the will of the Father. And Jesus completely filled up that assignment. Okay, 6.3, our second consideration, I said was his exhaustive messianic fulfillment. I didn't think I had time to put the slides back in and show you why I'm drawing out these things from each part of the affirmation, but it's in 6.3 where we affirm that Jesus has exhaustively fulfilled the messianic assignment. Luke 24, Jesus rises from the dead. First thing he says, the whole Bible's about me and about my gospel labors. This is in his conversation with the two men on the road to Emmaus. You may remember they're walking seven miles. These two men are sad. Jesus comes up undisclosed to the two men. What are you talking about? Are you the only person around Jerusalem and you have no clue what's been happening in these days? And Jesus says, what stuff? Uh, Jesus, the Nazarene, he was killed. We thought he was going to be the Savior, the Messiah. And Jesus responds this way. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, we know he's talking about their writings. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? That's his death. And to enter his glory. That's his resurrection and ascension. And all that based on the prophets. And the reason we know spoken means what they wrote because it says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the graphe, the scriptures, the writings. So he took the prophetic writings and he says, Malachi, that's me. Habakkuk, that's me. Isaiah, that's me. And he explained to these men that the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior himself was written of, of old. Same thing in John 1.45. We've labored this verse throughout our time at Grace Church, but it, it needs to be an even well more trodden passage. Jesus calls Philip. Instead of following Jesus, immediately Philip goes and gets Nathaniel under a fig tree. When Nathaniel comes to Jesus, Nathaniel realizes he's the Savior. But this is what Philip said to Nathaniel. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's his humanity. Jesus of Nazareth, that's where he's born. And this is his earthly father, son of Joseph. There's his humanity. But that person is the one, you guys know the books Moses wrote? The one Moses wrote about in the law? Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? A smattering of the Psalms? Philip says to Nathaniel, all of that is about Joseph's son, the carpenter in Nazareth, and all the prophets. 
And again, there's the word wrote. So we know we're talking about no less than 17 books of the Old Testament, five major, 12 minor. Let's do a little Bible uh, class, uh, a little Bible uh, book of the Bible quiz. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Keep going. Jonah, Micah, this is painful. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's 17 books. That's the prophets. That's what Jesus is talking about. And when Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, he's like, have you noticed that Zephaniah is about Joseph's son? 6.4. I want to draw out four things very quickly about our Redeemer, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. That's the title of the article. He yielded himself in voluntary death. He was raised as vindication of God's grace with an indestructible life. He ascended bodily, and he's currently interceding for his own until his return. The affirmation says, we believe that Jesus Christ suffered voluntarily in fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he died and was buried on the third day, rose from the dead to vindicate the saving work of his life and death, that's point two, and to take his place as the invincible, everlasting Lord of glory. During 40 days after his resurrection, he gave many compelling evidences of his bodily resurrection. The third point comes from this statement of the affirmation. Then he ascended bodily into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people on the basis of his all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. And, fourth point, reigning until he puts his enemies under his feet. Let's go one at a time quickly. He yielded himself in voluntary death. Jesus said, no one has taken my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So just earlier in chapter five, he said, I can't do anything on my own initiative. He doesn't contradict that here when he says, I lay it down on my own initiative because he even says a hint to subordination, even the one thing that I'm telling you I do on my own initiative is something the father commanded me to do. Acts 2.23, this man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God and you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So who did it? God or godless men? Both. It was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God and you're guilty of doing it. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty met at the cross. And then Acts 4 underlines the same truth. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So what they did to Jesus, they're guilty of, but it happened and unfolded precisely as the hand and purpose of the Father had predetermined. So that's him yielding himself in voluntary death, Second, his resurrection is vindication of God's grace to us because of the indestructible life of Jesus. Listen to how scripture hits this point. We know he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the epicenter of the gospel labors of Christ, the resurrection 
Apart from resurrection, we're still in our sins. We're of all men most to be pitied. So he was raised. But notice this. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. He was raised because of, I think Paul means for, our justification. In order that God could forgive our sins and remain God. It's on the basis of the risen victory of Christ. God is just and we're justified through the justifying work of Jesus in his resurrection. So, voluntary death, vindicated God's justice with his resurrection and indestructible life, but his ascension, this is a core truth of the Christian faith. Uh, We often don't follow in Protestant circles the church calendar, the ecclesial calendar, but many traditions that do, Anglican and Episcopalian and some of our Eastern uh, siblings do follow the church calendar. And one of the highlight Sundays of the year is not Easter or Christmas, though those are highlighted. It's Ascension Sunday. And year after year after year, there'll be a whole focus on the ascension of Christ. This is essential to the Christian faith. So let me back up one slide. He ascended bodily. Acts 1, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way, that's a bodily return, as you have watched him go into heaven. So they saw him ascend bodily. That's, that's an essential truth to the Christian faith. Jesus is currently embodied and will forever be. He wasn't before the incarnation, but he took his glorified body back to heaven with the nail prints and the scars, the emblems of our redemption. You will see the body of Jesus glorified with the emblems of your salvation still marking his brow and his side and his hands and his feet. Finally, he's interceding until his return. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. We sing hymns, he's pleading the merits of his blood. That's what he's doing. Father, accept her on the basis of my righteousness. He's interceding. 1 John 2, John tells us he's writing to the little children so that we may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a representative, an intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. That's the very end of the article that says he'll judge uh, all all who won't believe. Um, And... He's going to reign. To which of the angels has the Father ever said, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet? He's reigning until, the affirmation says, all of his enemies are made his his footstool. So that's a super fast, rapid fire of the biblical theology of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Um, We have about four minutes where we could do some interaction. So comments, questions, clarifications, or something you'd like to add? Yes, sir. The first one was, 
Galatians 6-4, Galatians 4-4. Oh, 4-4, did I? Thank you. Yeah, I put the wrong reference. Thank you. Good. Anything else? There have been huge attacks in church history on the doctrine of the Incarnation, and next week's lesson is on the historical theology of that. Yes, Miss April. That's a good question. I would, uh, anybody else is welcome to jump in on this. I know that because we're in the man at God's right hand, we're as good as glorified as he is. So I know the father based on Romans eight, that golden chain of redemption, those whom he foreknew, dot, 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 he glorified, past tense. It's already a done deal if you're in Christ. So we're as good as glorified in God's sight. So I don't think the son in that sense, in his current intercession, is saying um, with any, any susceptibility to our not being forgiven, oh, please, please forgive them. Uh, I think it's rather along these lines, I don't know that he's praying it this way, but biblically, theologically, soteriologically, salvation, it's the son is saying, you have accepted my sacrifice. That's readily evident. You raised me. You seated me at your right hand. I know that my sacrifice is adequate to uphold your honor and save the rebel. So she's in me. And so in that sense, he's advocating for us on, on behalf of his own blood and righteousness. Um, I think appealing to the merits of his blood as we sing in that hymn. Um, it's, it, and the father takes great delight in justifying those for whom Christ died. So it's not like he's having to persuade the father who's unwilling. He's joyfully receiving the intercession of his son, the intermediary work of his son, for those who will take refuge in him. Um, I don't know if that speaks to your question, but I think that's kind of the big idea of his current advocacy and intercession and pleading on our behalf. It's not a please, please, please save them. It's they're mine. And the Father says, oh, if they're in you, then they're mine. So, yep. I think maybe what could be added is, one, the, the inner workings between the, the different people of the Trinity we would, we would describe as, as a mystery. The second thing is that sometimes or even oftentimes, the Bible will use what could be called phenomenological language. In other words, using terms that we understand interpersonally 